I'm 100% sure that all the animators and story artists at Pixar listen to this podcast. No doubt. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of the Water Women Podcast, the podcast all things ocean. I'm your host, Jill. Today, I hope you have something warm on because because we're talking polar regions, specifically phytoplankton. Now, polar regions, polar waters, and phytoplankton are two things that I don't think gets near enough love. I'm really excited to learn more about it today. I am so excited for today's guest. She is here to teach us all kinds of cool stuff. Uh, I'd like to welcome her to the podcast. So welcome to Water Women. I'd love for you to introduce yourself and let us know what pronouns you like to use. Thank you, Jill. I'm so excited to be here and uh, be interviewed by you. My name is Allison Cusick. Uh, she, her, hers. Let's hear about who you are and what you're doing right now. What makes you a water woman? I am currently living in San Diego, California, and so my backyard is literally the Pacific Ocean, which I'm realizing I don't take for granted. Every day I try to think of how can I get in the ocean. We've been having a lot of storms lately, so I haven't gone in this week, but um, it's it's very accessible down here. I'm originally from Seattle, Washington, a much colder climate. <laughs> Um, so, and we have the Puget Sound and lakes and rivers, but access to the ocean isn't as easy when you're living in the city. So since I've been down here, I've really embraced diving. I've been attempting to learn to surf, um, learning to free dive and just learn to drive boats and try to be on the water as much as I can. Really kind of living that beach life and getting that all that ocean. I'm so jealous right now. Oh, I'm like getting that. I'm like, I want to be there. It's definitely an amazing location for that. So, um, yeah, have to take advantage of it (laughs) for sure. So, what are you studying? Because you're there to do your. I believe you're doing your PhD, right? Yeah, I first moved down to Scripps to just go for a master's program, a non-traditional. It's not a master's in science program. It was a master's of advanced studies, Um, but that led into my PhD. Um, So I'm still here at Scripps Institution of Oceanography in the PhD program for biological oceanography. Um, And I'm focusing on polar oceans, specifically phytoplankton in Antarctica. So it's very the coldest oceans in the most (laughs) furthest away part of the world you could be. (laughs) That's very interesting that you're in like a warm, hot, almost tropical area and you're yet you choose to study polar oceans. Kind of ironic. (laughs) It is very ironic. So So what is your actual project? Like what is your question? Did your master's, did you start it as a master's and then turn it into a PhD or did it just kind of flow through from your master's? I had been working actually after, so I went to the University of Washington in Seattle uh, for undergrad and just initially did a biology bachelor's degree because I had always thought being an astronaut would be cool. And astronauts, when I looked up (laughs) on the NASA website, a lot of them had degrees in STEM education. So I didn't think about the oceans till much later in life and ended up working a bunch of different jobs in science for 10 years, but started to realize that 
when I wanted to find a new job, I wasn't as competitive for the positions because I didn't have a master's degree. And so I looked at this program that was one year long. It was in marine biodiversity and conservation. You were supposed to focus on social, economic, and policy issues around marine science. Uh, So I really liked that interdisciplinary nature because I had been working in the lab. So I saw what the scientific process looked like from setting up experiments to kind of brainstorming a grant idea to publishing a paper. And I thought, what else can you do with this besides experiments, publications, and educational content for for K through 12 schools? So that master's program was kind of really eye-opening and exposing me to all of these different aspects about the marine world. And through that, I focused on um, I knew that I, well, sorry, you can edit all of these because they're, it's like a big roundabout tangled web of how I got to where I am now. That's um, the best kind of web though. So through the master's program, I had met my advisor, uh, just over lunch, you were supposed to meet a bunch of different faculty and talk about ideas for your one year capstone project for the master's program. And it was a two hour lunch meeting with this one woman who worked in polar and worked in phytoplankton because I had been working with phytoplankton the six and a half years prior to deciding I was going to go to graduate school. And I thought maybe this would be my opportunity to get away from phytoplankton, (laughs) but there's, there's, they're so cool that I, I realized sticking with the phytoplankton world and then meeting this woman who has spent 30 years in working in Antarctica would just be a really uh, fruitful experience. So she, at the end of our two hour lunch mentioned that she had this connection to the tour ships and, you know, Antarctica has been preserved as a place for peace and science since the sixties. And then there's tourism that has been growing. And so I was like, wait a minute, what do you mean this connection with the tour ships? (laughs) And cause I, I thought it would be cool to bridge that gap between scientists who go down to Antarctica versus tourism that's wanting to also visit these regions and how can we maybe bring those two communities together and so I got in contact with that guide the polar guide that she knew and then that year of my master spent brainstorming this project that a citizen science project called Fjord Phyto because we're studying phytoplankton in the fjords of Antarctica (laughs) and the fjords are just I think people in the higher latitudes might be more familiar with fjords of like New Zealand and Norway, Alaska, Canada, (laughs) um, Chile, (laughs) Patagonia. Um, Those are fjord systems. But so after we designed that project, I realized somebody is going to need to to analyze the samples that are collected through the citizen science program. And I guess that doesn't exist really as a job. So that would realistically look like me becoming a PhD student. (laughs) But it would only benefit because I think in science, I mean, maybe I'm just a late bloomer in general in life, but I think in science you start to realize when you are having your own creative ideas and want to ask your own questions, having the, you know, PhD or ability to write grants as a a principal investigator Mm -hmm. is really the creative outlet being able to do that is is what 
going to graduate school provides for you. So yeah, um, I just realized, you know, I loved being the technician for 10 years and running experiments and having the hands on, but I wasn't really connected intellectually to <laughs> the creative part of it. Yeah, you weren't getting to ask the questions that you wanted to be answered. Exactly. So I think after that, just, you know, working in so many different projects, that's when I realized like, huh, I want to learn how to ask the right questions, how to write the grants, how to get funding to do science. And that's, yeah, what I've been learning a lot in this PhD program. (laughs) (laughs) The unspoken side of PhDs. No, it's not fun doing the science. You actually have to do some business work too. Oh my gosh, yes. It's like program management, also writing. I I wish now in my past I had just spent more time in writing classes because that is, you have to write as a scientist. And I think so often, in, yeah, I just think often in like undergrad, they don't really highlight that pro- part of science. So definitely I had, there was a class I took. It was my literally last semester of my last year of my undergrad. Uh, and one of my profs, Cassidy, who I've had on the podcast before, she was like talking to us and it was kind of like a, it was a weird class. Like it had, it was an upper year class, but it had like second and third years in it. And she was like, oh, for all the younger kids in here, like, I'm going to let you know right now, the two kinds of classes you should definitely be like taking for your electives are writing and more math classes. And I was like, awesome. I didn't take either of those. Thanks for, (laughs) thanks for letting me know. Thanks for making me panic right now. Yeah, hey, like more on my plate. <laughs> I was like, do I take a six year? Like, what? <laughs> um, but they are like, so I did take some that involved it, and they are super helpful because you don't realize like how much writing and editing and just like proposals you're going to be writing. Like, hey, I deserve to have some money to do this. Like, please, uh, that doesn't fly. Yeah, right. You have to have a convincing pitch and justify every sentence you write as much as I wish just going hey please would work yeah no you need to be able to like convince people exactly and I know I feel like too there's been more of a push towards this and also through science communication um, training but between now and I think you know when I was in college that was still a that's a side thing don't worry about it it's you know, your important part is the experiments and the questions and the hypotheses. And now I think more and more people and more and more advisors are supporting their students and like, yes, go get this interdisciplinary training. Go, you know, these are all part of the skill set you need to do science. Totally. I remember even thinking like, oh, I'm writing all these lab reports, like my writing's fine. But like writing like papers and like explaining experiments is totally different than like, pitching your project yeah (laughs) that's very different (laughs) very very different so did you grow up like loving the ocean knowing that this is something you wanted to study this might be surprising because I feel like a lot of people have always grown up like being in the ocean environment loving it but I actually did not until I was in my late 20s wow Um, my mom Uh, almost drowned in the ocean off the Pacific in Washington as a kid. And so when we were growing up, we, I just distinctly remember her telling us, don't go in above your knees. So I had kind of formed this early, like disdain for the ocean. It wasn't a nice place. Um, And it was dangerous and scary. And 
so I, you know, I, when I was thinking about what to do in college, I loved traveling. And so this idea of going to the moon really inspired me to think about the astronaut, um, you know, career. And so that's how I chose the science field. But then I chose biology because I just love nature and I love thinking about the environment. And then um, working in the field, there was a geology field trip we took and it was to the Friday Harbor Marine Labs with the University of Washington. And I remember doing this dredge and we pulled up, you know, sediments from the, the sea floor or the, the Puget Sound floor. And I just was dressed like a city kid. So I was freezing. My hands were numb and I, and it was windy and rainy. And I just remember thinking, I will never work with the oceans. This is miserable. <laughs> Like, this is so wet and windy and cold. And I know the University of Washington had a great oceanography department or still has one. And I just remember thinking, absolutely not. No way. I'm going to do jungles, trees, inland, land environments. (laughs) And yeah, so it was, I think that was, so that was 2006. And then 2013, one of the jobs I had sent me to Antarctica. This was the first time I had ever been on a ship. And it was 53 days at sea. And as soon as I landed, I was like, oh, my God, this is like being on another planet. So now I just (laughs) scratch this astronaut itch that I have. And the ship world is so massive and industrial that I I don't know why that element of just being at sea uh, really grabbed me. And then, yeah, I had to learn everything about oceanography on that trip. So I was just like what do you mean the ocean has layers and there's a conveyor belt the the you know with the saltiness and the cold convection you get this thermohaline circulation all around the earth and I was just like my jaw dropped like oh my god I thought the ocean was just a bathtub of water oh man learning like the physics of the ocean and like how it moves like blows your mind isn't that crazy insane to like bathtub full of water is perfectly described how you kind of learn about the ocean as a young kid like you're like this is just a big thing of water nothing special and then like you might be interested in it going to study it and you learn some of the stuff you're like what the heck this is so cool this is yeah. so cool <laughs> it's amazing and I think too to know how everything's connected through it it's, it's like a never it's like a maze that never ends every little route you oh. go down there's just more of the uh, amazement maze to discover I remember, like, in my first year of, like, undergrad, taking, like, three different courses that were all, like, ocean-based, and but, like, very different. Like, one was, like, a mammals course, one was an oceanography, and one was, like, intro to marine bio. And then they would all touch on, like, these certain things that were so, like, interconnected. I was like, wait, that is because of that, because of that, because of that? What? Yeah. Like, it just was, like, so cool. Yeah, it's awesome. So I think my my appreciation for the ocean has grown, and it's ironic that I'm now studying the coldest, windiest, wettest, harshest ocean in the world. I think we like get some girls, some women on here that are like, oh, like I thought the ocean was cool as a kid, but I think you were the first person that was like, no, I actively disliked the ocean, <laughs> and yet here I am. Yeah, it it's it's weird, and and too like when you think of your favorite marine organism or something that drew you, I just, I don't really, I was been a land person. It's weird, but I mean, that's just to show how amazing the water world is. And it's pretty more you learn about it. 
yeah, you're just, okay, my whole career is now <laughs> with the ocean. So. so the polar waters, you like, you're in this perfect place to study warm water and the stuff in the warm water. So what's important about polar waters and the microscopic world that you're looking at that makes it important to study? Um, good question. <laughs> so <laughs> the, so Antarctica, of course, is like, you know, harsh, remote, you, you think of it as desolate and the animals that live down there are penguins. But when you look on the coast and the marine ecosystems, Inland, it's very uh, dominated by the micro scale animals. So, like your biggest animal is what, like a worm, a, ne- a nematode, or a <laughs> a tardigrade, um, a water bear. But on the coast, you have the whales coming, you have seals, you have a bunch of penguins that feed off of krill and deep water fish, and you have on the seafloor if you ever get the opportunity to dive down there which I'm still that's on my to-do list someday um (laughs) all these all these images that photographers come back with it's just an abundance of life on the seafloor and you're wondering how is all of this able to function there's no trees on land there's what is what is making this ecosystem thrive and it's the microscopic plant-like organisms in the ocean the phytoplankton that are giving life to everything down there so I think for me understanding that level is intriguing because it's again connecting everything to that ecosystem and why you have life down there why you have life in the oceans anywhere um, and understanding how you know those systems connect with each other and how the phytoplankton communities um, grow throughout the season. I think of it like agriculture. Like we have agriculture and forests and seasons on land and the phytoplankton community in the ocean, we, we always talk about it like they're just one big group, <laughs> like forests. Yeah. But when you look at it, you're like, well, there's so many different species. There's just like you have so many different species of trees. And just like agriculture, you have different produce available at different times of the year in Antarctica, in the oceans too, you have different phytoplankton food available, different species available to the, you know, smaller animals like krill at different times of the year. So it's, it's kind of understanding that, you know, that's called succession. So how, what's the seasonal succession look like of these different types of phytoplankton within the big group of phytoplankton? Oh, cool. That's really cool. I didn't know. Oh, well, I mean, like, it makes sense that there's, like, different kinds of photoplankton. And, like, photo- photoplankton. Phytoplankton <laughs> is, it's so underrated. Definitely, definitely one of my, like, not on the top of my list, but I always, like, make an effort to remember it because I'm like, no, you don't get enough appreciation, so I'm going to appreciate you. <laughs> but I didn't realize there was so many, well, like, I knew there was different kinds of phytoplankton, but I didn't realize that they weren't at the same time or like there was that succession of them that's really cool yeah yeah and I I think to understanding I mean the microbial world is still underappreciated I think there was a podcast I was listening to that was about how whale conservation became such a big deal and it was humans connecting to the fact that whales have songs so this was like mm. a you know a big movement now whales are in the spotlight and I was thinking like 
what is the phytoplankton song equivalent? Like, how do we get people? Because, yeah, I, I even remember as a kid going to the pond in the you know, high school and collecting stuff from the pond. And then you look under it in the microscope and you're just like, okay, like, why do I care about Daphne? Yeah, and like, I don't yeah, like, cool. <laughs> and it's like, okay, they're cool shapes. There's these weird little animals. But for me, the connection is like, oh, my God collectively they're contributing to earth's oxygen they're taking carbon out of the environment and giving it you know packaging it into food for all the other animals or when they die they sink to the seafloor and that's food for all these animals on the floor like these in abundance phytoplankton are controlling earth (laughs) so to speak (laughs) i love that it's like i don't know how to make people more excited about them but i guess you know every chance you get (laughs) my favorite thing is I worked on a tour boat and one of my favorite like little facts to talk to people about would be like like I'd talk a bit about we'd talk about like what whales eat and I'd bring up phytoplankton I'm like do you care about phytoplankton and often people would be like no and I'm like oh so you don't want to breathe you don't like air I love kind of explaining that connection between like phytoplankton supplying us with the majority of our air yeah it's insane I, it's also a good one to use for people who um, don't think that their actions matter in in like you know moving towards a more sustainable planet and curbing the climate crisis and all those you know big scale things problems that we're facing that seem so daunting and I'm like oh my gosh this is where phytoplankton are the perfect analogy because one little cell might seem so insignificant like who cares about that one little phytoplankton it's not doing much but all of them working together are contributing to these global scale processes. So I think <laughs> that's, you know, trying to work phytoplankton in any angle I can <laughs> to our life as humans. Phytoplankton. <laughs> Things don't have to be sentient for you to care about them or like large scale sentient. Like they don't have to be this intricate species with, uh, familial bonds and all these connections they can just be downright cool and you should still care <laughs> yes write that on a motto wave the flag <laughs> well, I'll get you that like, on a mug yeah <laughs> I would definitely drink coffee every day out of that mug <laughs> <laughs> it, it's like the um like people are obsessed with space and like celestial objects and and I'm just like why like how do we get that same enthusiasm for phytoplankton <laughs> I mean, there bioluminescence. So cool. Has anybody seen bio? Like you probably have bioluminescence up where you are in, in Canada. We do. We have. Um, okay, I don't. You, I'm sure you've heard of this, but it was the thing that blew my mind and made me be like, okay, this stuff is really cool. Is salp? Oh my god! <laughs> I love them. They are so cool. <laughs> that is so funny you say that um why why do you like I want to ask you this why do you like salp like what is the coolest okay. part <laughs> so how I learned about it was I worked also at an aquarium and we gave these tours and like I was learning to give the tours my friend Brian was teaching me and he started talking about salp and he was like they connect together they form an opening they're bioluminescent and I was like what that's like that's an animal and he's like yeah and I was like that is so cool. That is rad. I love that. And he was like, why are you so excited about this? I was like, you don't think it's cool that they just like can glow? And he was like, I mean, yeah. And I was like, no, I am so excited about this. Yeah. I mean, and also what you said, like they'll just butt off chains. They, how they, you know, their life history or just like how I don't understand, but 
it's funny. I'm laughing because when I'm in Antarctica, I, I've been transitioning. Now I work as a polar guide on the tour ships and give lectures about phytoplankton. But some years we have salp in the water and people are always like, what is that? And then I go on this whole <laughs> tirade about salps and how cool they are. And all the lectures are about salps and people... I think, think that I study salps. And I'm like, I actually don't study salps. I just think they're so cool. That's so funny. Of course, the like one phytoplankton I kind of know is that one. Like, I love that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Bringing that world to life is a big to-do task. (laughs) It is. It's kind of hard to get people to care about it because they're not like, like whales and like larger megafauna is like look at this really cool animal like you can look into its eye you can see it's got like a soul and then like these microscopic organisms you're like look how small it is so cool (laughs) i think maybe with our um one of the other things that i think is so cool about phytoplankton is their uh, genetics so i've i never thought i was good at genetics even in college i was like i do not understand this stuff but the more I read about it and get interested in it and understand just the single cell phytoplankton genetics, um, some, you know, you put together their, their history of evolution and it's like, they are like little Russian dolls all stacked in each other with like one cell engulfing another cell. And then they become one. It's like the endosymbiosis idea. And then when you look, some of these phytoplankton's, Uh, genomes are a hundred times larger than the human genome and you're just like what do you need all that information for (laughs) what no way they they either came it's like a a specific dinoflagellate which is a type of uh, phytoplankton but they you know so there's this i think too with us doing more of these ancestry kits and 23andme and this dna sequencing is seems to be more in the public eye I think that's also a really cool angle to take. Like the genetics of phytoplankton are insane. And so. That is so cool. You would never think that their genetics would be that like complex and diverse and so cool. I know. I mean, they've been around for hundreds of millions of years. So I guess they've had a lot of time to. (laughs) Now I'm anthropomorphizing. They've had a lot of time to sit around and think about it. We all do it. We like I remember like being in my first year, and they were like, "Don't anthropomorphize." And I was like, "I'm still going to." But okay, <laughs> great. Well, I thought, okay, if you know anybody at Pixar, you should pitch this idea. But I thought it'd be so cool if they made a phytoplankton kind of. You know, I know there's like Happy Feet too, and there's Finding Nemo, and um, but if there was one just solely dedicated to the life of phytoplankton and zooplankton and like what that world is like and each one got you know you take the group of them like a diatom is phytoplankton covered in glass a dinoflagellate are the phytoplankton that have these whirling tails they're like whirling whips and they have crazy feeding strategies they can some of them can photosynthesize use sunlight for energy and then some of them can cast a mucus net around a bunch of other phytoplankton and dissolve them and slurp them up in this digested soup and it's just like if <laughs> those were all personified in, in to little characters that I think could be a really cool I, movie I think that would be a fantastic movie I would definitely watch it and you know like I'm 100% sure that 
all the animators and story artists at Pixar listen to this podcast. No doubt. So <laughs> I'm hoping that it'll come out. Like, actually, if they're listening to this, we're we're taking royalties on this. We're taking credit. Like, this is completely <laughs> Allison's idea. Um, so, like, make sure she gets a cut. Yeah, I'll I'll at least love to advise on the personification. <laughs> um, I'm going to request one that's specifically named after me. Just, just Jill. because <laughs> the main character, Jill. It can be one. It can be eaten by a whale, since that's what I studied. That's what can happen. Exactly. Wait, there's so much material there. <laughs> there really is. You can go so many different directions. I want this movie now. I will be writing a pitch to Pixar. <laughs> awesome. No, there is actually. Um, I don't know if you've heard of this conference, the Western uh, Society of Naturalists. Um, it's. My, basically west coast focused i think but okay. um, they one of their keynote speakers was actually from pixar and they were giving a science communication lecture about like here's how scientists make a graph here's how pixar might remake that graph <laughs> <laughs> or like you know what elements are really important to tell to get your point across and do you really need to call it you know that on the label or can you for uh, depending on your audience if it's not a scientific yeah. audience does this still say the same thing? So it was a fascinating cool. talk, but that would be super cool. I would, I kind of want to listen to that talk now. Kind of find yeah, I, I meant to look look up who who gave that. I have the like paper pamphlet somewhere in my files. <laughs> I will insert whoever it was here. You'll hear a little side note from me here in a second. Editing Jill is what I like to call her. <laughs> Perfect. Hi everyone. This is editing Jill here now. I looked it up with Allison's help. She sent me some information from the talk that she was at. And the Pixar guy was actually Daniel McCoy. He actually did it in partnership with Sarah El Shafe. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. So Sarah, if you're listening, I am, I'm incredibly sorry. Uh, Sarah was a PhD candidate at uh, UC Berkeley. She wanted a way to help visualize her PhD and wanted to talk strategies about filmmaking and how we could partner that with scientific communication to make it more easily accessible. I'll link an article about it down below in the description and you'll be able to find it on our website. Uh, it's really interesting how they can adapt storytelling from movies into scientific communication. It kind of makes it a more fun way to learn, but it's definitely super interesting and I'm really glad Allison brought it to my attention. <laughs> um, so we've kind of gone on a little tangent yeah, away. Sorry. <laughs> no, I love that. That was the most fun tangent. Um, <laughs> So when you're actually down, down in the Arctic or up in, is Antarctic south, right? Yeah, yeah. Arctic is bears in the north, and Antarctic is no bears, penguins in the south. <laughs> I promise I have a degree, but I don't even know the difference between Arctic no, and Antarctic. So many people, it's so many people confuse it. <laughs> I like started it so confidently. I was like, yeah, down south. I was like, is that down south? Oh, the cold no. places. <laughs> on one of the poles yeah. you know when you go to australia you'll be very familiar with it i feel like everybody in australia's got like a relative who went to antarctica <laughs> i love that can we all be the relative for that like, for my, my grandma was just there last week <laughs> okay. so when you're in the poles and you're doing your like kind of field work for your phd what are you actually doing how are you measuring or looking at this microscopic world and i believe you referenced it as like the invisible forest so yeah. how are you kind of studying that 
I love that phrase. It was Falkowski um, generated that idea of the invisible forest. Um, they, so there's so many ways you can measure phytoplankton. Um, and because I was designing a project that could be user-friendly for um, the tour ships, I tried to think of what are the key things we actually need to get measurements of, but also I don't have access to liquid nitrogen or deep freezers or, um, you know, a chlorophyll, like an instrument that can help me analyze pigments in these phytoplankton. So you then are left with a microscope, <laughs> but I wasn't going to make travelers try to identify phytoplankton with a microscope. Um, that's more of the educational connection component of it. But they can still collect a sample from the surface seawater and add a stain to that sample that will capture kind of a snapshot in time of what existed in that water parcel. And then there's another graduate student I work with in Argentina, Martina Massioni, and she will count individual cells. She's a traditional taxonomist, which is a dying breed of scientist who has the ability to identify it to almost species level just by looking at the shape and size and characteristics of these single cells. Um, so she then can count how many there were, and then she can also estimate based on the shape and size how much carbon or how much food they would be able to provide to the food web in other animals. And then um, we have the... Um, travelers can use a phytoplankton net, which is just like a fishing net, but it has a fine mesh fabric, and they tow that behind the boat to collect and concentrate all these phytoplankton. Then they'll take that sample and they will filter it out. So I don't want the water, I just want the cells. So they'll use a hand pump and they'll <laughs> be filtering out the, the seawater, and then they take that and roll it up like a taco and stick it in a tube that has. A solution in it to preserve the genetic material so that the sample doesn't degrade and then those get sent back to me in San Diego where I can extract the DNA and then I can do sequencing uh, genetic sequencing on them to also look at the diversity in the species so then Martina and I can compare what she, species she's seeing versus what species we're sequencing because maybe oh. some of the species aren't showing up in her microscope sample but then, um, you know, we're relying on these databases that exist online for any ocean microbe that has been put into that database. So there is a chance, too, some species just haven't even been observed down in Antarctica. So kind of coming at it, those two approaches for the phytoplankton, but then also um, we take salinity temperature data. So there's a little device that is user-friendly and talks to the satellites and then it records saltiness and temperature and density of the seawater as this device is dropping down. And we just do the surface layer of the ocean because, you know, we can't have these big instruments that help us drop large instruments to the bottom of the ocean. So we're just left with what we can do from a, a little boat. <laughs> and um, But that will tell us any information about the environment they're living in so we're curious to know how glaciers melting glaciers from land will influence the marine environment so glaciers are freshwater and how does okay. making the ocean surface fresher 
from melting glaciers influence the types of phytoplankton we're seeing because the Antarctic Peninsula is one of the fastest warming regions in the world. So there's a possibility that, you know, the Arctic and up in the north, the Arctic glaciers experience more of this melt, freeze and thaw. But in Antarctica, because it's isolated by the Southern Ocean, it's not happening um, in the same way. So um, it's kind of like a what's happening? How might it change as this area is warming? And it, will yeah. it look more like what we're, we see in the Arctic um, or in sub-Antarctic islands? Um, cool. Yeah. We had, um, we had a woman named Lauren on a couple episodes ago, and she was studying uh, seaweeds in polar waters. And she was kind of referenced it as like a fast forward. Like you can using the polar waters, you can kind of see what's happening, what's going to happen all over the world, just almost a little quicker using that. Yeah. So it's kind of what you're saying is like yeah you're going to use that to kind of predict on what's happening yes exactly <laughs> so are you guys thinking that you might this is just like I don't even know if this is like a question that makes sense but are you thinking that you're going to see like more species of phytoplankton less species or a change like the species that we have now just changing a little bit what do you think is going to happen um the so the current hypothesis that's still an open question in the literature is I mean first like the polar regions, because they're just so difficult to gain access to, and they're remote, and they're harsh environments, and especially winter, knowledge of what's happening through the winter is very limited. Um, there's still these questions that seem, you know, kind of basic, like who's there, and when are they there? <laughs> but it's because you can't have a ship down there six months out of the year in one scientific team. You have different, you know, research stations. The question that still remains is, um, or what we're thinking is if the system is dominated by these diatoms or these big, uh, bigger cells, phytoplankton that are covered in glass, they're the, like really beautiful architecturally designed phytoplankton that have a lot of fats or lipids and they are selectively eaten by krill. And krill is one of the like key species that we talk about down in Antarctica because the whales eat the krill, the penguins eat the krill, the seals eat the krill. Um, krill is like holding everything together uh, so krill. <laughs> this is a krill stand podcast now that's my biggest fan yeah <laughs> krill are amazing um, they so if they're picking out these big diatoms but you're thinking now just in the phytoplankton world if they diatoms don't really like the saltier water or certain temperature they prefer the habitat different habitats then we might see a shift in the types of phytoplankton to these smaller phytoplankton or these flagellates. And when you look at the size comparisons, they're very different. So you can imagine a krill might not be able to selectively pick out these smaller phytoplankton. And the smaller phytoplankton might prefer fresher water. So there, there's this shift in your you know, trophic level, the first trophic level of the the primary producers of energy mm -hmm. and so if you're shifting to the smaller ones how is that going to change these bigger animals that rely on those diatoms so um, that nobody really knows that's what I'm in the PhD program asking questions about and there's a lot of other researchers who are also asking that same question and 
we need more data. <laughs> I love that. That's super interesting. Yes. Okay. So I have some questions also. This is just one thing that for some reason in my head, I can never get straight. And like, hypothetically, I like, I know the difference. I definitely, I understand the difference, but I always am confused between, I know like, okay, I'm going to start this off. Are phytoplankton live animals? Because I hear sometimes like, yes, live animals are no plants. So what are they? <laughs> yes, this is, this is getting into the weeds of science <laughs> communication. <laughs> so, so there's phyto, so there's plankton. Plankton is just, you know, the Greek word for drifter. It's anything that can't swim against a current. There's even debates if krill are plankton or not, because they can, they, you know, migrate and swim through the water. But yeah. General definition, plankton, drifting, not able to swim against currents. Um, and then in the plankton world, you have phytoplankton and you have zooplankton or zooplankton. <laughs> so I've heard the, both ways. I never know what it is. <laughs> so the zooplankton are animals. So these are your big like krill, crustaceans, um, jellyfish, um, Whoa, you're gonna tell me jellyfish are considered a plankton yeah they drift oh man <laughs> oh no salps your favorite salps are plankton zooplankton <laughs> true true oh my goodness okay so zoo versus phyto what's happening there well then phyto is the greek word for plant and plankton phytoplankton so it's a plant drifter but then when you look at are they really plants or not uh <laughs> they're not they're not they're protists so they're not fungi they're not plant they're not animal they're a whole nother part of uh, you know life on earth that's called a protist and um you know they came from algae so they're related to green algae and red algae and um yeah phyto is just meaning that they use sunlight to make energy okay that's okay. why we say plant-like they're, they're okay. because they're protists and nobody knows what a protist yes. is so we can't True. say so yeah we say plant like or just for the, you know the lay audience just plants because people know plants <laughs> photosynthesize so I think that connection is why we just run with it but when you really break it down they're protists not plants protists. not animals Oh my goodness. Okay, that actually, I'm not going to lie, you have explained that much better than any of my props throughout my entire degree. So to my props listening, I'm sorry. Uh, I did listen to you. I just understood this better. I hope I got that right. I mean, that's how I understand it. No, definitely. It. So then like zooplankton, they're, I don't want to say animals anymore. Now I'm scared. Are they no, they're animals. Yeah. Okay, they're alive. Yeah. They're alive. Yeah. So yeah. zooplankton, that, that's like krill and whatnot, right? Yeah. Okay, cool. Okay, I think I understand now. Yeah, that makes any, total sense. Yeah, usually the zooplankton, well, they don't all have eyeballs, but they're not single uh, cellular. Okay. Well, I don't even want to say that. You know, when you, this is, <laughs> this is whoever makes the tree of life things, like these are the questions they're asking. Like, where do we draw the line? <laughs> oh, like the, the, like the key things, like who, who goes where and what, all of those things. Yeah. Like props to whoever makes those because I they just hurt my brain to think about like well there's like a slight difference here but not here and like just oh, amazing yeah well it's like with the is a virus alive you're like oh I don't they used to say oh. no but it reproduces so so, so like, not maybe so it's alive like <laughs> but then there's I don't want to also like not do like it's just like oh, man 
that's not our job. We don't have to worry about it. Yeah, that's a different different career path. <laughs> so out of the phytoplankton's that you study, before we dive into your project, out of the phytoplankton's uh, that you study, do you have a favorite? Do you have a specific one that you're like, this is my all-time favorite? This is, is it the one that you're studying or just what's your favorite? What my favorite phytoplankton? I, I have... I think it's it's the dinoflagellate that casts the mucus net out and engulfs other cells when it's hungry. <laughs> I think that's so alien. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I'm going to have to go with that one. But I'm looking at all of them, and I, yeah, I, I just think that one's cool. There actually is another one, a diatom, a catoceris, if we want to be even more specific, that has been shown to live for over 7,000 years or like, I mean, hibernate almost. It's like a form of hibernation and it come, has come back to life 7,000 years later. No way. That is crazy. That's insane. How does that happen? I have no idea. <laughs> the earth is so cool. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I, I would have to go with that. I, this is why it's like a can of worms. The more you start to learn about them, it's like addicting. It just... It really is. So. Can of worms is perfect to describe <laughs> that because it's like, oh, this is cool. Ah, oh, now I'm down a wormhole. It's like those yeah. like YouTube wormholes you get going down. It's like, oh, oh I've learned one thing cool. Yep. Now I want to learn everything about it. <laughs> now, you also have this super cool project that you co-founded and I would love for you to tell us a little bit about that. Yes, that is a very fun project. Um, it's a citizen science project called Fjord Phyto from studying the phytoplankton in the fjords. So well so citizen science is just I mean it's also called community science or public participation in science and it's a way to ask scientific questions but get more people involved who don't necessarily have scientific training. So it was it was founded initially, it was seeing that there's a community of travelers in Antarctica, and Antarctica as a, as a place preserved for peace and science, how do you bring those two communities together? And I had done a lot of educational work on ships in Washington with the Ocean Inquiry Science Program, and that was just to teach kids about how oceanographers do oceanography. And... Then I had also heard about, um, you know, there's the Tara Oceans um, was a sailing ship that went around the world collecting microbes from the ocean. And there's a lot of data that has come out of that. And they partnered with sailors to try to get sail, you know, sailboats and small yachts to collect phytoplankton and do toes. So I just thought from that inspiration, you know, I had also been on a lot of Earthwatch trips for vacations. I just liked you know, because I was working more in the ocean world, I still missed being on land. So I would take my vacation to go help other scientists do their work through ecotourism projects. And so I thought all of those could be melded together into a program where, you know, travelers come down and they're seeing the, this most amazing, what I think is the most amazing place on earth. And to kind of give that sense of scale, um, you know, it's so the magnitude of the place is just so big. You're like a tiny little human that maybe being able to participate in the scientific process and actually literally get your hands wet and collect samples um, to help researchers who 
you know, we don't have access. Yes, we have research programs, but you have two ships in the U.S. that all of the polar scientists might try to find time to use. Um, so if the tour ships are there for five months a, every year, you know, that's more eyes on the ground, more help with observations, more ways to be involved in the polar science legacy that's down in Antarctica, and then more education and outreach opportunities. So you can, you know, teach people about all levels of life while they're down there seeing it firsthand. Cool. That is so <laughs> awesome. How do, if someone wanted to like get involved, how do they get involved? Um, if you want to physically get involved, then uh, you'll have to book yourself a trip to Antarctica. <laughs> um, Love that. Yeah. <laughs> so if you've been dying to go, you can look for the um, citizen science projects or, um, you know, we want this program to grow. So um, also back at home, I think just, you know, learning about phytoplankton helps looking for any projects um, that are near you that you could start participating in. Um, also sharing our project uh, with friends and family and talking about what goes on down there um, is also helpful um, just for more of that, you know, outreach and getting the word out that there's, I, I mean, I think a lot of times, especially the cruise industry can get a bad rap, but when it's different style of cruising when you go to Antarctica and the fact mm -hmm. that you can, you know, connect to the science that's happening down there, I think, um, makes it impactful for some people. Um, so, yeah, and then of course, you know, all scientists always need funding support. So yeah. <laughs> we can write these big grants, but we also have a donation platform. So if people help through support in that way. Um, so yeah, sharing it, talking about it, learning about it, and uh, learning about phytoplankton in their own homes. Um, and then I love that you're using citizen science for that, that that's super awesome. Citizen science is really has a special place in my heart. I think it's amazing. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's growing. I think it's like, there's now a citizen science association that has conferences um, every other year in the US and the opposite years in Europe. Um, oh, cool. It's just recognizing that you know, science doesn't have to only be done by the science scientists. It can be, yeah. I mean, the crowd in the cloud is a great TV episode series that's free online that shows highlights all of these case studies of people, you know, help like weather predictions or just by people yeah. having rain gauges in their backyard. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of cool, powerful stories. Yeah, I love that. It makes science really accessible. And it's one of those things that like helps get people to care about it. Like if you're just sitting there listening to scientists be like, hey, this is a problem. And you're like, mm, okay, sure it is. But then if you're actually like looking at it, you're like, oh, okay, I'm collecting, the, I'm helping to collect this data. I do see the changes or like, I someone referenced this before as like for birding. It's really obvious in birding because like, people will send in when they see birds and all of a sudden people will be like, Oh, Hey, we're not seeing these birds here anymore. Why not? Like it just yeah. helps you kind of notice. Yeah. And I mean, I've had, there's like three uh, testimonies, I guess that stick out in my mind. One gentleman who participated in the science process was like at that evening, he's like, this is the first time in a long time in my life that I felt that childlike spark of curiosity. And I was just like, Oh, that is awesome. 
And then another woman, she actually wrote, um, Tanya Goodman wrote on the Washington Post about her experience and that it gave her that, you know, tangible interaction with Antarctica, which was such a big scale experience for her. So participating in the science was like a tangible aspect, something she could, Mm -hmm. you know, contribute to while she was down there. And then, um, you know, we did took surveys and a lot of the people who filled out the survey about their experience were saying it was just nice to see how the process is done. Like, oh, that's how science is done. It, it's really cool when you're not a scientist or not part of the scientific like community, seeing how data is collected and seeing how like just seeing that kind of stuff. You're like, oh, this is really cool. Yeah. <laughs> you definitely yeah. like lose touch with it a little bit doing all of this. Like you're kind of like, oh, I don't want to go out on the boat again today. Like this is <laughs> it's gonna be wavy. And then like you kind of almost have to take a step back and be like, we're so lucky to get to do this stuff. Like so cool. <laughs> definitely. I remember there was one day when I was doing I was like doing some research down in Australia and I had gotten like a really bad sunburn a couple days before and I was like laying about I was like oh, I really don't want to go out on the boat today like it's so sunny and I'm like oh, it's gonna be so hot and I was like okay no no I don't get to complain about this that's not fair <laughs> yeah it's so true it's hard though I imagine you don't do you get seasick not at all I'm really lucky that I like grew up on the water so I've never been seasick oh my god that is so lucky I, I'd say that's one thing that turns a lot of people off is they get I got I get seasick all the time I get land sick so <laughs> But it doesn't mean you don't have to be involved in the ocean because, you know, there's medication. Tons of ways to work around that. (laughs) Because it is, I've had a couple women on here before be like, I always get seasick when I go diving. And I'm like, okay, but you're a professional diver. Like, how are you doing this? (laughs) It was kind of cool to see that there is workarounds. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. This is maybe TMI, but on the ship while you're taking samples. It's like you get seasick and you're just like, oh my God, excuse me for a second. You go over, you know, over the side of the railing and then you're back to work or that's happened to diving. I'm like, it's rocky before you get out of the boat and you're just like, okay, before I put the regulator in my mouth. (laughs) You're lucky. You're so lucky. If someone wanted to do what you do and research what you do, we've kind of touched on this a few times, but would you have any advice for like a young woman listening who is like, I want to study that. Like, what should she do? I, this is a great question because I have discovered personally and just by listening to, you know, examples of people who, how they got into the field that there's no one, this is not the magic answer anybody wants, but there's no <laughs> one path to, to finding that door that will like open for you to get in the polar world. And so what I did is just searched everywhere and talked to as many people. And so there's, you know, my number one piece of advice is don't give up, like don't lose heart because from the time I decided I wanted to do stuff in polar and actively was trying to find a job, you know, working as Antarctic support contract staff, I flew myself to a job fair to try to interview and it didn't happen for me till seven years later. So now I'm in the world I'm I'm in it. And, and it's like, how do I bring more people with me? But also there's no straight path. So, you know, I, I went to job fairs. I looked at indeed.com and for Antarctic jobs with whoever has a support contract for, you know, different Mm -hmm. countries have different, um, methods of hiring their research station staff. Um, you could work 
at the research stations. You could work on the ships. You could try to find internship opportunities. So like in the United States, the National Science Foundation posts all of the researchers who have received funding through the Office of Polar Programs. So you can even start emailing people if they have any internship for undergrad or college students to come help. Um, and yeah, I, I would just say sign up for newsletters and associations like SCAR, which is the Scientific Committee on Antarctic Research. Um, if you're interested in fisheries down there, CAMLR, uh, the acronym is C-C-A-M-L-R. Um, the tour industry is run by an organization called IATO, or the International Association of Antarctic Tour Operators. Um, if you want to come in the guiding angle, there's the Polar Tourism Guides Association. Um, there's also, you know, early career polar associations like Apex you could get involved with. So I just think getting on all of, basically casting out all these feelers, <laughs> eventually one of those doors will yeah. open. Absolutely. I love that advice. That is my absolute favorite advice. Just be like, just reach out, email people, be like, hey, I'm interested in the work you do. Yeah. Just kind of like make connections, network. Yes, networking. <laughs> Have your foot in the door. So it's like the same with the polar world. I think a lot, I mean, obviously I wanted to go to Antarctica. So looking for an opportunity where I get to go to Antarctica is really <laughs> what is driving the search. But are you willing to just analyze some data, even if you never get to go to Antarctica? Are you willing yep. to, you know, help organize a lab that studies Antarctic stuff, even if you don't ever get to get on the ship going like because you might someday like it might not happen that year yeah. or that two years but the fact that you're willing to just be immersed in any aspect related to it I think that yeah and then being persistent like no I really yeah. do want to be involved in this field <laughs> if it's something you're passionate about being willing to like make sacrifices for a little bit is really important because you're not always going to be like even us our work isn't us every day out on the boats are doing what we love and yeah. well, it's always doing what we love. Oh, but yeah. It's never always a fun, cool, getting your hands dirty kind of stuff. Like there is a lot of time spent staring at your computer crying yeah. because you don't have a code won't work. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. <laughs> Daily life. <laughs> and then it's just because you're missing like a parentheses of some sort and you're like, I hate this. <laughs> uh, it's almost comical when you realize how ridiculous some things are about that come with the job. <laughs> Like, I think, like, I have, like, specific, like, PTSD from, like, R because, like, I just, like, it opens and I'm like, oh, gross. Like, I don't want to look at it. I am impressed you even open it. I have, I have successfully <laughs> been procrastinating even opening the program. It's, it needs I to stop. I it all costs. <laughs> I also have my best friend during my undergrad, Jake. He... He did, we were both like marine biology, but I was like the biology of it. And he was definitely like the statistics, like mathematics of it. Like he has like a minor in statistics. So anytime I'm like, Jake, my code won't run. And he's like, just send it to me. And I'm like, thank you. <laughs> great. See, you need a person like that. Exactly. It's ideal partnership. Yeah. <laughs> now, I also liked when you mentioned like finding places to reach out because you actually have a website. And on your website, you have a little section that has like career opportunities and things that you can look for. And I think that is phenomenal. In fact, I think your entire website is phenomenal. So I want to give you a chance right here to kind of plug yourself and like hype yourself up a little bit with your social medias and share where people can follow you along with that stuff. Well, thank you. I'm happy to hear that. I, yeah, I started that website in 2015, mostly because it was like, how can I compile 
resources that I've been finding useful and, and have a place to share that with other people. So, and woman scientists was, you know, similar to that in the beginning, I was interviewing people and sharing stories of people doing just field work, not necessarily ocean related. Um, and kind of highlighting you did all the different paths. You didn't necessarily have to go to grad school and it's morphed over the years. And now I just share more in the polar specific and, um, polar science world. Um, but I just think it's important when I was young, younger, I printed out like a 250 page document from the oceanography magazine that had little bios of all of these women working in oceanography. It was like a 10 year review. Like where have we come in the past 10 years? And I still have that binder in my bedroom right now. And that's exactly what social media and, and this, these websites and platforms like your podcast are providing examples for people to follow. And I think it's so cool that you're starting this podcast or that you've had this podcast going and that you highlight different stories like this, because, um, you know, you never know who's going to land on the page and find it help their life in some way. So I think, yeah, woman scientists is hopefully a place for that. Absolutely, it is. I was got kind of like in. A, we talked about wormholes. I got in a wormhole in your website, like reading your blogs, like signing up for all these like things. That you had something on there about mammals, and I was like, I absolutely, I'm signing up for this. Like, I basically had like I what I was signing up for is like looking for masters and stuff. And I was like, I have this, but I'm still gonna. I want to know more. Like, so cool. It's kind of cool that you highlight so many cool things. Yeah, yeah. Email lift serves are a huge thing too. Like, I think it was mar mammals, maybe is one. Yes, that's it. Yeah, so many opportunities come through those. And even if some of them don't relate to you, it's still nice to get all these emails of things that exist out there. Um, So, yeah, and then, of course, I try to keep active on social media just because, partly because I wanted to share my own stories and highlight other people. But also with Fjord Fido, it's a citizen science project, and I don't get the personal contact information from people who have participated, which we've had over 3000 people participate at this point. And so I try to encourage people to go visit the social media channels, which is why we just started a YouTube, which I need to figure out what I'm posting there, but you know, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, trying to cover it all so that people feel like they're being updated on the project that they helped contribute to. So for sure. well thank you for joining me today on the podcast it was so awesome to have you on and I loved learning so much about these different little phytoplanktons and pretty much everything so thank you so much for joining us thank you for having me I had so much fun chatting with you today thank you for listening to another episode of the water women podcast I love sharing these stories with you and I love that you love to listen make sure if you like the podcast you're leaving a review and liking and subscribing to the podcast it really helps us out You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Waterwomen Podcast and on Twitter at Waterwomen Pod. You can also check out more from us, including quizzes, blog posts, and shop our site at waterwomenpodcast.ca. Thanks again for listening, and until next week, stay salty.